0: This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The 1960s marked the dawn of a new age in many regards, especially when it came to exploring the last great frontiers, both here on Earth and beyond. When you think about the advances in technology and the incredible human achievements of the 60s, the list starts to get pretty long.
1: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, at one all step for man. One
0: as most of the world's looking up at the stars, a small group of people back on Earth was inspired by a different voyage, one that took place about seven decades earlier and might just be one of the least known adventures in history. It involves an intrepid sailor named Joshua Slocum, who in 1898 became the first person to sail around the world solo. He set off alone from Boston, Massachusetts, in April 1895, and three years later, after sailing over 46,000 miles, docked his 36 foot boat in Newport, Rhode Island. It was an epic achievement, yet the monumental accomplishment went mainly unnoticed. The story was picked up by newspapers months later, but Slocum never received the recognition he deserved. Almost 70 years later, as the space race was reaching new heights, Joshua Slocum's nautical adventure was inspiring competition here on the seas. One of those fierce competitors was Francis Chichester from England. Like Slocum, Chichester also wanted to circumnavigate the globe solo, but he wanted to do it in the shortest amount of time possible. In 1966, and surrounded by the media, he set off on his journey. In May 1967, nine months and one day after setting sail, Chichester returned triumphant. He had smashed the previous world record, which garnered international attention, and he quickly became a source of national pride in England. For his incredible achievement and service to the country, Francis Chichester was knighted by Queen Elizabeth. As the sea and wind were being conquered by faster boats and more competitive sailors, the opportunities to find glory were becoming limited. There was one record, however, no one had yet achieved, and for good reason – sailing around the world solo, non-stop. The idea was considered so intimidating, so reckless, that no one had ever attempted it, and if they had, they never made it back to tell anyone. So the history books were still waiting to honor the first person to achieve the non-stop challenge. The voyage would be grueling, lonely, and unpredictable. But that kind of adventure is exactly what attracted nine competitors when word got out, there would be a race. But what was supposed to be an inspiring quest spiraled into maritime madness, and throughout the years, has become known as the Race of Insanity. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Yachting,
1: an exhilarating sport which has flourished unchanged for many years and is likely to continue in that path for very many more.
0: In March 1967, two months before Francis Chichester returned to great fanfare in England, 28-year-old British merchant marine officer Robin Knox Johnston had already decided that he wanted the coveted title of being the first to complete a non-stop solo trip around the world. Knox Johnston approached the Sunday Times newspaper looking for sponsorship, but quickly learned that he was not the only one planning an attempt for the record. The newspaper, who had sponsored Chichester's record breaking voyage a couple of years earlier, now found itself with numerous contenders. Unsure who to sponsor, the Sunday Times settled on a rather genius public relations move. Instead of sponsoring one boat, as they had done in the past, the prominent British media outlet decided to promote it as a contest. They called it the Sunday Times Golden Globe Race, and it was open to anyone who was daring enough to join. It was the first yacht race of its kind, and arguably one of the most dangerous. In light of this, the rules were kept as basic as possible. First, and most importantly, this was to be a single-handed adventure. Only one sailor per boat. Also, very limited technology could be used. It was to remain an unassisted voyage. Next, This would be a race of honorable sailors. As there was no way to track the vessels at the time, it was up to each captain to keep accurate and honest records. As such, there was no organized start date. Anyone who embarked on a solo, non stop circumnavigation between June and October 1968 would become automatically entered into the race book. Designing it this way meant there was no need to qualify for the event. Unfortunately, that also meant there was no way to ensure that participants were sufficiently experienced and properly equipped for such a treacherous undertaking. Another rule stipulated that competitors would need to depart no later than October 31, 1968. This was to avoid the severe winter weather south of the equator. Around South America's Cape Horn, for example, during winter, the waves can reach 10 stories tall and the water is freezing due to its proximity to Antarctica. When it came to prizes, first and foremost was the world record title of being the first person to sail around the world non-stop with no assistance at all. If the glory wasn't enough, there were two more prizes up for grabs. To the person who completed it in the fastest time, a monetary prize of 5,000 pounds would be given, the equivalent today of around 120,000 U.S. The first to complete the voyage would also receive a trophy. The 30,000-mile race would be the ultimate test of endurance for not only the sailor, but for their vessel as well. Starting from England, the route would take them to the South Atlantic, rounding the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. Competitors would then continue east, past Cape Lewin in Australia, before heading toward Cape Horn at the southernmost point of South America. From there, the boats would turn north, passing the Falkland Islands off the east coast of Argentina. Crossing the equator, racers would then head into the North Atlantic and on to the final leg of the journey. The finish line was located off the south coast of England. The Golden Globe race would pit sailors against months of brutal isolation, unpredictable weather systems, and unforeseen challenges that would certainly test even the most experienced. If anything went wrong, depending on their location, competitors could be as far away as four days from civilization, By March 1968, the race already had several boats officially entered. One was a 42-foot schooner, Galway Blazer II, owned by 58-year-old former World War II submarine captain Bill King. Another was the English Rose IV, skippered by British Army captain John Ridgway. Shea Blythe, from Scotland, would take to the water on board his 30-foot, Didacus III. John Ridgway's boat was also 30 feet. And there were concerns that their vessels might be too small to withstand the harsh ocean conditions. Those concerns were disregarded by both men. One competitor slated to win at least one of the titles was 45 year old French adventurer Bernard Moitissier. He would be attempting the journey with his 39 foot customized ship, the Joshua. Moitissier had no interest in prize money, world records, or publicity of any kind. He was drawn to the race simply because he loved sailing and wanted to test his personal limits around the same time another competitor of sorts threw his hat in the ring 35-year-old british electronics engineer and father of four donald crowhurst also wanted the chance to become as famous as sir francis chichester crowhurst ran a business selling navigational aids and while he could talk the talk his lack of sailing experience compared to the other racers meant he was the underdog in more ways than one at the time he entered the race, Crowhurst's business was sinking, and not only could he use the money, but the promotional opportunities as well. If he won at least one of the prizes, the resulting publicity could provide the boost he desperately needed. His plan was to sail a custom-built trimaran, calculating that three hulls would be faster than one. The problem was, as far as seaworthiness went, the track record wasn't all that stellar in rough conditions for this type of design. That didn't stop Donald Crowhurst, who claimed he had developed a system that addressed these issues. It was his intention to demonstrate the system on the voyage, and when he successfully returned, he would have it mass-produced. In order to have the system ready and installed by the start of the race, he needed funding right away, which he got, but with conditions. The contract he signed stated that if he withdrew from the race before departure or dropped out early, He would have to immediately repay the amount in full. Given his modest income, this would leave his family bankrupt. It was a huge gamble, but Crowhurst was all in. He mortgaged the family home to finance construction of his boat, the Tynmouth Electron, and set his departure date for October 1st. Meanwhile, other competitors had already started the great race. John Ridgway was the first to set sail on June 1, 1968, followed by Shea Blythe a week later. Robin Knox Johnston took to the water on June 14, and he soon started gaining on the other boats. Aboard the English Rose, Ridgway was finding the isolation overwhelming, and the boat was taking a beating. Deciding on a slight detour, he sailed to the island of Madeira off the coast of Africa, and while there, picked up a copy of the Sunday Times. It was only while reading the newspaper that he realized he had broken one of the race rules prohibiting receiving assistance. That included reading newspaper publications. John Ridgway had accidentally, technically, disqualified himself. Believing the rule to be trivial and with plans to dispute it upon his return, he continued on the voyage. On June 30th, 45 year old British Navy Lieutenant Commander Nigel Tetley announced that he had entered the competition with his trimaran, Victress. Bill King, Bernard Motissier, and fellow Frenchman Loic Fougeron had not yet set sail. Around the same time, Donald Crowhurst was just getting started on the construction of his Trimoran. Meanwhile, the English Rose continued on its course through the choppy southern ocean, despite disqualifying itself earlier. As the days went on, however, the boat's condition grew worse, and John Ridgway became increasingly concerned about not just crossing the finish line, but also his odds of survival. On July 21st, seven weeks after starting the race, he decided to withdraw from the competition. With Ridgway now out of the race, Shea Blythe was the new leader, but his boat, Didacus, Was not doing well either. In mid August, the situation was so bad, he accepted assistance from a cargo ship in the South Atlantic, who helped him with the necessary repairs. Blythe knew he had disqualified himself, but with the boat ready to go, he continued along the route just to see how far he could get. A few weeks later, he too would retire from the race, citing ongoing issues with the boat and equipment. The official leader was now Robin Knox Johnston. In late August, three more boats raised their sails and started the epic voyage. Bernard Mortissier, Loic Fugeron, and Bill King may have left at the same time, but from the start, it was Mortissier who set the pace. Nigel Tetley took to the water on September 16th, but with just six weeks left to enter the race, where was Donald Crowhurst? Disorganized preparations and last-minute changes to his custom-built trimaran meant it was nowhere near where it should have been. The clock was ticking and he would have to decide whether to withdraw and face certain financial ruin or set sail in the ill-equipped vessel. However, the competition was about to become a little less crowded when, in late October, two boats were caught in severe conditions and forced to withdraw. The Captain Brown, piloted by Loic Fugeron and the Galway Blazer, with Bill King at the helm, both sustained enough damage in the extreme weather to render them unsafe. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls how to refine your mental models and how to think about... The October 31st start deadline was fast approaching, and there were just three boats still in the race. Bernard Mortissier was still closing the gap with race leader Robin Knox Johnston, while Nigel Tetley fell in behind. At the last minute, the highly regarded Italian sailor Alex Carazzo set sail, despite being well out of the running for the first boat to cross the finish line. Carazzo was an experienced sailor and was taking the trip aboard the 66-foot Gancia Americano. The boat wasn't fully ready, so to meet the start deadline, he finished the work while on the water. Donald Crowhurst also launched the same day, and, like Carrazzo, was not ready. Much of the 40-foot Tynmouth Electron remained unfinished, and many of the supplies, including essential repair materials, hadn't been loaded aboard. Yet, with the world watching, Crowhurst set off on the -the around-the-world journey.
1: I have never put to sea in such a completely unprepared state in my life. Nevertheless, stipulations were that competitors would leave by the 31st and leave by the 31st I did.
0: One of his sons, who was eight years old at the time, later told the Sunday Times, I remember vividly the effort of trying to see the sail for as long as possible, of watching that sail getting smaller and smaller, and waving occasionally, just in case he could see us, and finally, straining to see it even after it had completely disappeared. Only two days into his voyage, things started to fall apart, literally. Screws started falling off the self-steering mechanism. The waterproof hatches were not so waterproof, leading to flooding issues. By mid-November, the mechanical problems had gone from bad to just plain hazardous. But Given the financial stakes, he decided to sail on.
1: My spirits are high, and I see no reason why I shouldn't stick it out.
0: For the camera, he was optimistic and confident, but in his personal journals, he was quite the opposite. Racked with doubt about the boat's ability to withstand severe conditions, Crowhurst estimated his chances of survival were 50-50. In the meantime, Alex Carrazzo's voyage was over pretty much before it began. On November 14, 1968, just two weeks after embarking on the global race, the Italian sailor called it quits after stopping in Portugal for medical attention. That left only four competitors in the race. Knox Johnston, who was still in the lead, Moitissier, Tetley, and Donald Crowhurst, who was becoming more anxious every passing day. He was not only far behind the others, but was confident that if he continued, it would mean certain death. On the other hand, he believed the personal humiliation and financial bankruptcy he faced if he quit was just as bad an outcome. So, after just four weeks at sea, Crowhurst devised a simple plan he would cheat. After all, nobody knew exactly where he was. He figured he could lay low off the coast of Brazil for a while. He would keep radio contact to a minimum and construct detailed, albeit completely fake, logbooks for each stage of the race. He could wait until the leaders rounded Cape Horn and headed north, for home. He could then slip in behind them, undetected. He figured that a third or fourth place finish would be respectable enough that no one would question it. What sounded like a simple plan was actually an incredibly complex undertaking, given he would need to work backwards when documenting his navigational positions but Crowhurst was determined to pull it off and went to great lengths to make it believable. Along with the falsified logs, he continued to keep an accurate account of his location and personal writings. On December 10th, about six weeks after he began the Golden Globe race, Crowhurst made contact with race officials to report that he had set a new record by sailing an incredible 243 nautical miles in a single day. A week later, on the 17th, he radioed to say that he had crossed the equator, which, of course, was also not true. His updates were always exciting and positive, but the reality was, he was just bobbing around the Atlantic.
1: I feel a bit of a Charlie, actually, sitting here with this BBC tape recorder. Um, I feel like uh, uh, somebody who's been given a... Tremendous opportunity to impart a message, uh, some profound observation that will save the world. Mm. All I can do is stand here bewitching away like a lunatic.
0: Toward the end of December, Crowhurst made contact with his wife, but refused to give his exact position. He would only say that he was somewhere off the coast of Cape Town, South Africa. But at the time, he was just 20 nautical miles off the coast of Brazil. Back in England, the media were hanging on every word, not least of all because his communications had become so infrequent. In reality, he was actually trying to avoid his radio signals being detected by land stations, which would give his true position away. On February 7th, Crowhurst recorded the following narrative to give the impression he was battling harsh weather in the Southern Ocean.
1: You look out on this wild landscape, stretching away as far as the eye can see. Streaks of spume blown down the face of these immense waves. And froth white foam sending a great flurry of spray and heavy water all over everything. And it's all tremendously exciting and a tremendous challenge, of course.
0: As the other competitors continued the voyage in earnest, Crowhurst was logging the fictional details of his journey. What was not a lie was the poor condition of his boat, and if he was going to eventually rejoin the race, he would need to make some repairs. So, on March 8th, he docked in a small Argentinian village. Despite the boat's arrival being recorded by the Coast Guard station, Crowhurst managed to avoid being ID'd. With the vessel partially repaired, but still far from seaworthy, he headed back out to wait in the ocean he would not have to wait long. A few weeks later, on April 6th, Robin Knox Johnston, who had maintained the lead position throughout the race, was only 1,200 nautical miles from the finish line. Bernard Mortissier was still making good time, but after six months of trying to catch up, the gap was only widening. Nigel Tetley was still in the competition as well, but his boat, Victress, was not in great shape. By this point, Crowhurst had maintained radio silence for nearly three months. So, on April 9th, as the other boats drew closer, he sent a telegram prompting a flurry of excitement back home in England. Despite being just off the coast of Brazil, his communication indicated he was still southwest of Cape Horn. Barring any unforeseen issues, he said that he expected to arrive home in early July. When the news reached his family, they were understandably overjoyed, as were the newspapers. Not long after receiving the good news, the media received another message, this time from Mortissier. A month earlier, the French sailor decided that the waiting crowds and hordes of journalists ruined what, for him, was more of a spiritual endeavor. Just six weeks away from the finish, he abandoned the race, sailing on to the Pacific. In his final message to the media, he said, My intention is to continue the voyage, still nonstop, toward the Pacific Islands where there is plenty of sun and more peace than in Europe. Please do not think I am trying to break a record. Record is a very stupid word at sea. I am continuing non-stop because I am happy at sea, and perhaps because I want to save my soul. This meant Crowhurst was still a contender for the prize money. So, as he'd been planning for months, he headed north and fell in behind Nigel Tetley, believing his fellow Brit was trailing the other two boats. He was not aware that, including him, there were only three boats remaining. However, after running into a severe storm, Tetley's boat began taking on water. As the victress began to sink, he was able to radio a mayday alert before climbing into his life raft. He was only 1,100 nautical miles from the finish line when his boat went down. Thankfully, he was rescued a short time later. On April 22nd, 312 days after setting sail, Robin Knox-Johnston crossed the finish line.
1: And the cannon is gone. The cannon has gone. Day 312, about 25 past 3 on April the
0: 22nd, and Robin Knox-Johnston and Sue Haley have sailed non-stop around the world. Donald Crowhurst was now the only one left in the race and all he had to do now was cross the finish line and the cash prize was his. This however was definitely not his plan. He was never supposed to win the race, which would bring with it much more focus on how he did it. Instead of passively reviewing his fabricated travel logs should he have finished last, they would now certainly be scrutinized by officials and the press. Crowhurst knew that winning and successfully executing his deception was a near-impossible task. When he received word in early June that he would likely claim victory by default, he lowered the sails and stopped the boat. He went radio silent for almost three weeks as the boat drifted aimlessly in the Atlantic. The plan that had taken months to prepare was now falling apart. But he was hopeful there was a way to salvage the impending wreck. Then, on June 22nd, Crowhurst finally radioed the outside world to provide a status update. But when he learned that tens of thousands of people would be there to greet him at the finish, his stomach sank. His plan all along was to slide under the radar, but now there would be an army of reporters and race officials waiting for him, eager to ask questions. There was no way of escaping the unwanted attention waiting for him. Panic gave way to despair, quickly followed by an apparent mental breakdown.
1: Why should I worry? That's the man, Donald Carr.
0: <laughs>
1: He's given this lunatic crow a tight recorder he And 74,000 miles of tape, you see. Well, what can he do? I mean, after all, he's got to deliver a load of gibberish in order to fill up the space, matey. Do you see? It is a terrible
0: thing. On June 24th, two days after learning of the massive celebration planned for his homecoming, Crowhurst started writing what would become his manifesto. In the 25,000-word document, he attempted to express his increasingly bizarre philosophies. In the end, I was forced to admit that
1: nature forces on cosmic beings the only sin they are capable of, the sin of concealment. It is a small sin for a man to commit, but it is a terrible sin for a cosmic being. I have become a second-generation cosmic being.
0: Over the next week, he slipped further from reality as evident in his final logbook entry, dated July 1st, 1969.
1: I am what I am, and I see the nature of my offense. I will only resign this game if you will agree that on the next occasion that this game is played, it will be played according to the rules that are devised by my great God, who has revealed at last to his son not only the exact nature of the reason for games, but has also revealed the truth of the way of the ending of the next game. That it is finished. It is finished. It is the mercy."
0: Back on land, everyone was eagerly awaiting the return of Donald Crowhurst, the last one to start the race, but would be just the second to finish it. The anticipation was electric as they waited. And waited. There was no sign of the 40 foot Myth Electron or its captain. There had been no radio contact for some time, causing some to worry that something may have gone wrong. On July 10th, their fears were realized when a cargo ship discovered the sailboat in the waters of the mid Atlantic. It had been abandoned. An extensive search found no sign of Crowhurst, but his belongings, including the logbooks, were found on board. To anyone who read them, it was clear that he had let the ocean take his life. The excitement at the finish line quickly turned to heartbreak.
1: A surprise development tonight over the missing yachtsman Donald Crowhurst. Crowhurst's trimelan, Tynmouth and was found drifting and deserted. The pale blue weather-beaten time Moran, which was a certain winner of the race, was in good condition. The mystery of his disappearance, therefore, is still inexplicable. The film and his tape recordings may provide other clues, but for the moment, this lonely yacht without her lonely captain is not giving up any of her secrets. Any of her secrets. Any of her secrets.
0: Of the nine competitors that entered the Sunday Times Golden Globe race, Robin Knox Johnston was the only one to finish. He was awarded the prize money, which he immediately donated to Donald Crowhurst's family. When the contents of the logbooks were made public, it understandably became the subject of great media attention. The intricate web of deception and the first-hand account of Crowhurst's mental health leading to his suicide was almost too difficult to comprehend. Race organizers, along with much of the public, were horrified that such a wholesome and inspiring adventure could be marked by such a dark outcome. Over the years, the 1968 Golden Globe race has become a legend, not only within the sailing community, but with people fascinated by the achievements and disasters of the epic challenge. It would be half a century before another Golden Globe race was announced. To celebrate the 50th anniversary of the original non-stop around the world sailing competition, organizers planned for a July 1st, 2018 start date. This time, 18 boats entered, but only four finished. A testament to the enduring challenge and to the true adventurers who embark on the voyage. Another Golden Globe race is currently being organized for 2022. Months at sea alone on a sailboat, no assistance, total isolation, and Mother Nature constantly trying to sink you? If any of that sounds like fun, check out the GoldenGloberace.com site for details. I, for one, am happy to remain on dry land. I'll be back next week with another episode.